doctor came literally running and, uh, you know, she, her, she was putting her coat on as she ran. And I sort of looked up and I looked down and I literally saw blood like flowing off the table onto the floor like a river. And I was like, is that me? Welcome to yet another episode of Entering Motherhood, a podcast dedicated specifically to new moms going through this amazing journey in life. I'm your host, Sarah Bilger, a postpartum nutritional coach slash mechanical engineer. And as always, I'm so excited to be here with you and share all the information I've been lucky enough to obtain since becoming a mom. In this episode, we talk with Jo Ingram about her journey of entering motherhood for the first time with her daughter, and then also about the birth of her twin girls. Welcome to Entering Motherhood, and I am so glad to have you here and get uh, ready to hear about your birth story. So if you want to start off telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do and things like that, go ahead. Yeah. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, my birth story is a little bit at the the rough end of what can happen, unfortunately. And um, I know that a lot of people that listen to your podcast might be pregnant at this time. So <laughs> a little, little warning before I start that this is really, really rare. And ultimately, the story has a really happy ending. But yeah, I guess as birth stories go, it's a pretty rough ride. But what, what happened was I was pregnant with my first daughter. I was 29 years old at the time. Um, my daughter is now 16, actually nearly 17. So we're going back a little while. Um, and it's taken me a little while to get pregnant. I needed some medication for hormones because she was very much wanted. But um, I got pregnant without too much trouble. And the pregnancy went really well, no problems. In fact, I was working in a corporate job. And I didn't stop work till two weeks before my due date because I wanted to maximize the time with my baby after I after I had stopped working and was on maternity leave. And actually, two weeks before her due date, I stopped work and I went to my cousin's engagement party, actually, and was dancing. And later that night, I went into labor. So um, that was a bit of a surprise, particularly for a first baby being two weeks early. But nonetheless, uh, off we went. And I had been very intentional about the sort of birth that I wanted. I'd chosen to have a water birth and um, I wanted it to all be as natural as possible. And where I was living at the time, and this going back 16 odd years ago, there wasn't much availability for water births. So I'd had to pick a water birth center that was about at least an hour's drive away. But I didn't think that that was too bad on the first pregnancy. And so off we drove and it was a Sunday morning and we went off to the hospital. And when we arrived, or rather the birthing center, and when we arrived, I was just, I considered myself the luckiest person around because they said to me, wow, you're like nearly fully dilated. <laughs> You've only been in labor for a couple of hours. This is, wow, this is incredible. The baby will be here in an hour. And I just thought, wow, I've just scored the jackpot here. This is awesome. In fact, they kind of said, oh, have we even got time to fill up the, the, the pool? And we were like, well, yeah, yeah, fill it up. Anyway, the baby didn't come in a hurry. And I spent about a bunch of time in the birthing pool. And we got to a point where at the birthing center, they have a rule that you get sent over to the hospital. It wasn't on site, unfortunately. You had to be transferred. And they said, you know, you've you've passed that that time. We can't really keep you here. You've been in second stage labor for 
too long now. So we're going to call an ambulance and yeah, it might end up medicalized uh, birth, but you know, I was like, okay, okay. Um, well, actually, I wasn't. I was howling, but um, you know, I think in retrospect, I, I understood that it was the the best thing for me. And when I say howling, I mean howling in pain because I hadn't had any meds or anything at this point. Um, and so off we went in the in the ambulance, and we arrived at the hospital, and I was admitted. And I was given an epidural, which was marvellous. I was really, really happy about that. It was a, I can't remember all the terminology now because it's been a while, but it was a, a walking epidural. So you could like move around on it. You could actually walk. And, you know, I was doing all the, the hip things you should do, like, I don't know, like walking up and down. And like I, I had a birthing stool and I was kind of like, yeah, this is going to be okay. But what had happened was that the time just kind of elapsed and, it just went on and on and on. And although I'd arrived at the um, birthing center in the early morning, it got to about five or six o'clock in the evening. And, you know, it still had the baby hadn't come and various doctors and midwives had come and gone or shifts had changed and kind of no, nothing had really happened. And then finally, one of the doctors said, you know what, I think it's at that time, I think we're going to have to move to cesarean. I was like, well, you know, okay, all right think it needs to be done fair enough and so off I went for cesarean and that happened relatively smoothly and the baby was born really healthy she was like six pounds and um she was fantastic we named her kitty and um that was all awesome and that that if the story had ended there which um kind of where it should have ended it would have just been a reasonable story that ended in cesarean and I do know that a lot of women find the fact that they didn't give birth naturally and had to have a cesarean, a massive blow. Um, I met women at that who felt that way. I met them postpartum who were actually really mourning their perfect birth. Um, I really, really feel for them. But at the time, and as my story continues, you'll see why I didn't, I wasn't as sympathetic at the time. And um, I had to, I had to kind of work on my, on my empathy over time because what then transpired, what happened with me is that as the, like the baby like came out of surgery and the baby was somewhere, I can't remember, like maybe being, being looked after. And I was brought a cup of tea and my husband at the time and my parents who were there went off to move the car, put more money in the parking meter, get a cup of coffee, you know, whatever people do in hospitals. And I'd been brought a cup of tea and I was like, oh, it's amazing. And at that point I started bleeding. Um, but bleeding really heavily, like postpartum hemorrhage. And I sort of didn't realize I sort of, the doctor came literally running and, uh, you know, she, her, she was putting her coat on as she ran. And I sort of looked up and I looked down and I literally saw blood like flowing off the table onto the floor, like a river. And I was like, is that me? And she's just like, push me down. She's just like, she was all business by this point. And she said, right, you're going back into surgery. She gives me this um, uh, piece of paper. And she says, oh, by the way, you have to sign this. And I'm like, uh, what am I signing? And she's like, oh, because we might have to give you a hysterectomy. And you I mean, you can imagine that you just recoil from this. I feel quite emotional even reliving that moment because it's a really big deal when you're 29 years old and you've just given birth to like sign a bit of paper that says, yeah, I give you permission to give me a hysterectomy, even though, of course, it was in order to save my life. And I, I did a really funny thing. And I remember signing 
with like not my real signature I mean you know I was just postpartum right I was like I was like if I don't put my real signature I can't take responsibility for this I'm not really giving permission anyway obviously that's just a, a very sort of emotional response to it but um when I woke up which was like almost a day later I was in intensive care and I had had a hysterectomy and they'd said to me that you know I had nearly died and I'd had to have more blood transfusions than they ever thought was possible and I was definitely like a near miss and I was lucky to be alive and they'd sort of told my parents and husband that night that I might not make it and it was it was all really really serious and terrifying and um it was it was a real shock and I spent two weeks in intensive care at that time and like my baby was kept behind the nurse's station and she was just brought into intensive care for you know a couple of times of the day for me to see her but um really it was a it was an absolute shock um and I was in like obviously quite a lot of pain because I'd had a lot of surgery but also like two days later I hemorrhaged again and again I was rushed off to surgery and it was found that my iliac artery which is a major artery that you have in your groin had actually been worn away by the prolonged second stage of labor um and they hadn't realized that but when they took away some packing and you know thought that I was on the mend it actually sort of disturbed this very sort of still artery, which was actually a bit like, I think it was described to me, is imagine like having a bed sore and it was like being worn away. Um, and so I bled out again um, and had to have more surgery to, to stop that, which is why I ended up in intensive care for two weeks. Um, anyway, after two weeks, it was relatively uneventful and I, I got to come home with my baby and I consoled myself by saying, healthy mother, healthy baby, which, you know, was an outcome which certainly wasn't guaranteed at the time um and there are cases where you know either the mother or the baby doesn't survive a, a, a labor like that it was if for anybody that likes medical terminology it was a uterine atony that actually caused the postpartum hemorrhage and that's simply when after you've given birth your uterus has to quickly contract because the blood flow into the uterus from all the major arteries is so immense to obviously, you know, um, give support to the baby. Um, so after birth, often women will be palpated or something like that to help the uterus contract quickly. But what had happened was because I had been in second stage of labor for such a long time, the, and I'd had syntocin on, or I don't know, some people call it pitocin, maybe, but it's like that stimulant that meant that my uterus, the contractions were made even stronger, that by the time it came to the cesarean, that my uterus had basically given up. And after the birth, it couldn't contract anymore. It's completely flaccid and it won't contract. And if it doesn't, of course, all the blood vessels that run in are... Um, are still open and that's why postpartum hemorrhage can happen and why um you know it can why why childbirth can be very dangerous particularly in developing countries i um i did quite a lot of research after that and you know to find out sort of how that happens there's, there's a lot more studies from countries where healthcare isn't as readily available and of course if you know you can't move to a cesarean and get those sorts of surgeries that i had the benefit of having you can see why you know maternal deaths in developing countries can be, you know, obviously it's a massive risk factor and it can be much higher than in developing, developed countries. Wow. That's 
Wild. I mean, I had a very, I mean, not the aftermath situation, but I was also in labor for an extended period of time. And we had concluded that I would go and take a, have a C-section. Um, but I couldn't even imagine all that, all that bleeding immediately afterwards and having to, you know, be in that situation. And then like you had said, having to quickly make that decision and sign that paperwork for a hysterectomy, not knowing what the outcome was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it, it was a really sort of very traumatic experience. And I did have like um, PTSD afterwards. Um, you know, there were the whole experience and there were kind of so many moments in that hospital during that experience that kind of added to the trauma. I think that hospitals aren't always well equipped to deal with such extraordinary circumstances. So, you know, examples like some members of staff might not have been aware or understood my situation and could say very insensitive things or even offer inappropriate medical treatment, which um, I did have at least twice, no, three times, <laughs> um, because it's not within their realm of experience or normality of how to how to handle a situation like that. So by the time I by the time I left hospital, I'd felt like I'd sort of survived not just with my life, but through quite a grueling and traumatic experience, um, which which took me a really, really long time to kind of um, integrate and then get over. So, And where yeah. did you start with that? Was that something that you sort of seeked yourself or someone had suggested because of such a traumatic experience, you know, look into ways of, of going through that? Well, one of the best things that happened to me was a nurse at the hospital did a little bit of research and she found an online support group called PPH Survivors and PPH meaning postpartum hemorrhage. Um, you know, again, it doesn't sound that long ago, but 16 years ago, there weren't Facebook groups or anything like that. You had to kind of find communities online. Um, and she gave me this, this website that she'd found and it was actually women from all over the world who had suffered not only postpartum hemorrhage, but hysterectomy as a result. And it was a really tight knit community, as you can imagine. Um, and I found a lot of solace there and also a lot of um, practical help about how to deal with the situation and actually complete my family. As you can imagine, you know, it's a lot of women made infertile during their peak child bearing years who were not ready to um to say to call it quits and not have any more children so that was a conversation that was you know really really popular within the group but also self-identity a lot of the women were really concerned about their their perception of their own femininity having had a hysterectomy particularly in your 20s or early 30s and sort of how that made them feel I think a lot of women who've had mastectomies, for example, go through something similar. Um, personally, I never felt that I was any less a woman because I didn't have my uterus. But um, I suppose that was that was one thing I didn't need to worry about. But um, there were lots of other aspects. And you asked 
how I sort of set about dealing with that in that sort of postpartum time. I think the, the, the initial period was very much about my physical recuperation. I am, um, you know, for any woman that's had a, a cesarean will know, it takes a good six weeks to, you know, be able to lift the thing, lift your baby in the car seat and drive again and, you know, get back to, you know, being able to physically cope with the demands of being a new mum. But um, more than that, because of all the blood loss and all the surgeries, um, I was pretty wiped out physically for what felt like months. But also, like mentally, I became really obsessed with finding out what happened to me. And I got all my hospital notes. And I just became an expert. I just did so much online research, because I really, really needed to understand it was part of the process for me which was I wanted to know what had happened and I wanted to understand why it had happened. I wanted to understand exactly what went wrong. And I, I did that. I spent probably about six months absolutely obsessed and delving into all my hospital notes and research and stuff so I could do that for myself, which ultimately was part of my healing journey. Um, and at the same time, I started to become aware of surrogacy as a solution for me completing my family with the help of the women in the PPH survivors group and also my own research, I was kind of like, oh, this is interesting because the type of hysterectomy I had, it's called a subtotal hysterectomy, which means you keep your ovaries. Um, so I was fortunate. I didn't have to instantly have HRT. And there were some women within my support group that, that did because they'd had total hysterectomies. Um, when you have a hysterectomy under those conditions where it's an emergency to save your life, my understanding is, is that sometimes the doctors just act so fast that, and it's such a mess that the ovaries just go too. So I was really grateful that, you know, the, my surgeon had taken the time and or was skilled enough to make sure that I still reserved my ovaries because I really wanted to pursue gestational surrogacy, which is surrogacy, which you use your own eggs and your partner's sperm and the the surrogate carries your genetic baby rather than a different kind of surrogacy where the, the baby might biologically be linked to the surrogate. So when, when did you start looking into that and when was that starting to become an option? Well, I think I started looking into it as a, as a concept quite soon, but I also realized there were just enormous barriers to actually succeeding you know, I was like, wow, you know, how do I go and get, how, how do I go about that? I didn't know anybody that had had a surrogate baby and um, I didn't have any connections and I didn't have the resources. I just wasn't really sure. But I think that there's times in your life where you become so obsessed with having a particular outcome that your mind's really open to, um, to finding solutions and overcoming barriers. It's like, you know, some people sort of call it almost like manifesting. It's just, you just want something so much that you almost bring it into existence. Um, it didn't, didn't happen fast, mind. And um, I, just, I just became obsessed by researching that. And I started looking into it. And I found some things that really concerned me because I'm in the UK. And in the UK, um, unless things have changed more recently, the law says that any surrogate baby born is the legal child of the person who actually gave birth to them, even if they're not genetically related. And that just made me feel uneasy. 
um, it, may, it was, in, you know, I think when you move into a process like surrogacy, there's so much trust involved. And that just seemed so scary and unreasonable <laughs> in the UK to, to not accommodate surrogacy arrangements in a more legal way. But I discovered that in parts, other parts of the world, and particularly I focused on California, that that wasn't the case. And actually, it was really well set up with, you know, all of the legal structure, but also counselling and support. And it was just as I looked, I was like, you know something, I, I really want to go to California and do surrogacy there. And there was a, two ladies in the PPH group that had done that themselves and, had, and over the process of me knowing them had success. So I was like, there's nothing like modeling. You know, when you see somebody else succeed, particularly when they're, you know, only a few steps ahead of you, you're like, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And suddenly it sort of opens your mind to the possibility that you could succeed. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And like you said, even just that those few steps ahead and having somebody that you can follow their lead and sort of see, oh, like, how did they do it? Um, is so beneficial yeah yeah and that's exactly what did happen but not until seven years later (laughs) um it took all of that seven years to kind of grow as a person and go through my own recovery as well as the natural steps of the things like finding the money understanding how it would work I also um went through divorce in the interim um and my oldest daughter's uh, father and myself divorced when she was under one um, and I think you know when you talk about the postpartum time it is a really stressful time and I know that our marriage wasn't meant to last but the added stress that you go through postpartum and particularly in my case with everything that happened not only to myself but I think sometimes you can overlook the impact on partners from the whole, you know, birthing experience and postpartum. And I had to accept that he was going through, you know, his own depression and struggles. And, um, you know, we ended up parting ways, but from a, and I'm remarried now, um, from a surrogacy perspective, I sort of had to wait for my new partner to, to become in my, to come into my life as well. And, you know, the, I was a single mum for a period when my daughter was a toddler, but my now husband, um, met I met him when my daughter was about two and we started um becoming very serious and so from that that very early point I talked about surrogacy and how I really wanted to complete my family he didn't have any other children and he was absolutely open to you know anything that that I thought would be the solution um and we started seriously looking into it uh let's see when my eldest was five or six something like that and Actually, we we just took one step at a time, you know, just open one door, took another step forward until um, the actual sort of happy ending, super happy ending of the story was in the uh, beginning of early 2011. My twin daughters were born in California with the help of a wonderful surrogate. And, um, you know, then they're turning 10 next week. So, um, yeah, I've, I have a wonderful family of three daughters which um, I completed against the odds. And um, yeah, kind of a lot of that stuff, you know, for me is is now well behind me. But that first year was, you know, really, really intense. I don't know, I guess, I guess the whole 
thing that you look into with the postpartum stuff that's your focus and and how people kind of cope with that right yeah yeah i definitely think you know that's something that we prepare ourselves so much for uh birth and whatnot you know you especially like uh wanting to go to the birth center and have a water birth and that was all planned out and you have these visions of of what birth is going to be like and i don't think that there is enough attention on what's going to happen postpartum and and there's no way to prepare for what you had gone through but thankfully you were able to find a support group and and really focus on that and i i think your curiosity and drive of researching so much and wanting to find the answers of what happened is so beneficial and is going to help so many other people who are in a similar situation and how we were talking about you know just being that those few steps ahead knowing that somebody else has been through this and and worked through it it really gives you hope for knowing that it's possible yeah yeah absolutely and you know you make a really good point about support postpartum because i mean i was very fortunate that i had this online group um but the reality is is that no other real support was put in place for me you know there wasn't anybody that's like oh hi i'm the expert in hysterectomy postpartum and i'll come and see you every week you know there's nothing like that and i mean there's not for some women there's not even support for you know people that were upset that they didn't get the birth that they wanted or that there were some minor complications or just any or postpartum depression some people don't get that support so i was very fortunate and i i did reach out and i went to see my my doctor and i said that i needed some counseling and you know i i thought i was just very mindful that i'd been through something really big and I needed to, to like integrate that. I needed to work through that. And they did put me in touch with a counsellor who I did see for a year. And I think that that was really, really helpful. I wasn't actually formally diagnosed with PTSD until after. But uh, nonetheless, I, I did get the sort of talking support that I, that I needed to, to help me along with that. And I think that that's why, you know, now particularly you know, with the COVID situation, it's just so important for people to have that online support if they can't meet in person, which is why I, I think, you know, the sort of community that you'll build and bringing women together and having that support where people can share their disappointments or their worries as well as their joy is just yeah. something that, that's so important. Yeah, for sure. It's something that I'm really excited about and and hopeful for. So I, I think it's just something, you know, like you were saying that, that curiosity and that, that research that you put into, uh, that's something that kind of sparked in me. And I, I was looking for that community and that place to kind of go to. And, um, now because of that, I want to help create that. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think it's so needed right now. I really do. I think um, that times are, are so much harder in so many ways. So for people to be able to reach out and have other people understand what they're, what they're going through and, you know, be able to sort of share that, that early motherhood phase. It's just it, nobody should be alone at that time, really, like alone and not meeting with other women going through the same experiences. Yeah. And especially it was, that's great that you were able to find a group so specific to what you were going through. And I know you said that first year was rough, but what do you think kind of 
helped you through it the most or now looking back, uh, what would you kind of recommend to people that are, are going through that postpartum period? Maybe not necessarily such a specific case as you had, but overall in general, what would you suggest? Well, I think I think the reality is, is that community and that support of the community is what literally carried me through. And like you said, I was fortunate enough to find really specific support, but that's true of everyone. You know, whatever your you know, your want for community, there is a specific community out there that will be just right for you. And finding those people, whether that's in person or virtually, that will be your rock through that time. I think I was probably tapping away on the computer all the time, communicating with them. I mean, there wasn't necessarily, there wasn't like FaceTime or stuff like that. It was tap, tap, tap. But I think I was on there all day long. I just wanted to communicate and communicate and, you know, hear what they had to say and give them my opinion and have them answer my questions. And that I I truly believe was the sole thing that allowed me to come through that, not only come through it, but rise like a phoenix with my twins and, you know, be able to properly lay the ghosts of that time to rest by knowing that I'm, I've basically achieved what, what I needed to, to make me feel whole as a mom and, you know, to be able to have no regrets yeah exactly yeah it really was there was you know there's nothing else that really could compare to that that's that was that's my my key message really if um I I think as well you know although you can never plan for every eventuality having an idea about what support groups are out there before the birth could be really useful because you know when you're in it after the birth it can be much harder to find what you need I mean like I said I was really fortunate a nurse gave it to me like hand she was like take this this is the the, the web address of a support group I really think you're the, that you should look at but I don't think I'd have found that on my own not in the state that I was in um but every you know not every no but you know many postpartum mothers are in a confused tired delirious state and to you know expect yourself to suddenly go I think what I'll do you know the day I, I come home with the baby is spend the day online finding just the right community for me might be a bit unrealistic <laughs> it might be nice to to sort of dip into some maybe before the baby comes yeah I couldn't agree more like I, like I said, I think I focused so much on the birth and what was going to happen there. And then when it didn't go according to plan, I was kind of all haywire of, well, what does this mean? And and now what? And things like that. So um, definitely kind of preparing for multiple situations can be helpful. And, and afterwards, I was just focused on how do I take care of baby that I didn't make that space for myself initially. And I learned over time that I needed to make that space for myself and I needed to care for myself because I couldn't properly care for my family if I wasn't first focusing on my own well-being. And our pediatrician actually recommended a support group that I went to for breastfeeding, which was super beneficial. And I enjoyed going there just to kind of get out of the house and be around other moms who were nursing and just having people to talk to. And it was just, it was amazing because it was during maternity leave. So other than getting ready to go out to go there, um, I was just sitting at home. So I think, I think definitely finding people to talk to and communicate with and 
how we were saying, you know, now with COVID and it makes it a lot difficult, a lot more difficult to, to vert, to see people in person now, uh, offering virtual communities is, is just as beneficial and just having somebody to see face to face and, and communicate with and talk to about that specific time period can be so beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even though my story is unusual and extreme, there are definitely sort of good learnings in there just in general about making sure that you've got the right community around you and, uh, you know, not letting go of your dreams, whatever they are, and also doing what you need to do to overcome the disappointments of what didn't happen the way that you thought it would happen and gratitude for how it did go right. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're alive and you have a baby, then surely everything else can be worked out and solutions can be found and just being, being open to that. Yeah, I think that gratitude aspect is something that I've definitely focused a lot more on. Um, I used to have a gratitude journal and things like that, and, and that was helpful. But now, even more so in motherhood, I think taking those little moments and finding things to be grateful for can really turn your perspective around and, and help you visualize what's going on in a bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you had found a surrogate. What was that process more so like? And how did you go about finding a specific one? And then what was the journey like between your first pregnancy and now seeing someone else carrying your baby? Well, I mean, it's it's obviously a really surreal experience. We um, we met with our surrogate through an agency in California that had been recommended to me through these women um, on this PPH survivors group. Um, in fact, one of them had done all the research and had had success and had had a baby. And another lady on the group followed her and basically used the same agency, the same doctor, um, and went through the same journey and was successful and I was number three and I had twins um so you know I think that when when the time is right the right things come to you the right solutions and here I had this doctor and as a surrogate in um southern California recommended to me um and we basically flew out and met with them and they match you with the surrogate they understand everything about you guys and everything about the surrogates and basically you meet who they recommend and we met with her and she was absolutely lovely and we met with her family and we took our kids out for the same went took them out for a walk and it was a good match and we were both happy to to go forward together um so I think that part was really really smooth um the story does get a little bit more sort of <laughs> intriguing later because you know sadly the surrogate herself suffered a really um complicated labor with our twins even though she had three children of her own and a twin surrogate pregnancy before ours um she had i think it was placenta, placenta accretia actually and she went into labor at 29 weeks um so that was a bit of a shock because we got we were in london and she was in california and uh, we got a call from the lady at the agency just basically saying, you need to get here because the baby's coming. Um, 
and we got on the first flight. But by the time we got to California, the babies were already born and in the NICU, um, which which is where they stayed for six weeks. Um, thank God, you know, all the, the scary bits that happened aside and anyone that's had a premature baby, a 29-weeker, will know what that was like. I mean, these guys were three pound, two pound, sorry, I've forgotten, two pound 15 each, two pounds, 15 ounces. They were both the same weight. And obviously they were really tiny. So um, we kind of then went through all of that trauma. I sort of joked, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't have a baby without ending up in intensive care. I mean, somebody's always in intensive care. Here we are again in intensive care, not me this time, the babies. But um, yeah, that was, that was a, a, that was a tough old journey. But um you know, that's just more, more um, amazing miracles, really. Yeah. And they were both so well. Stay in California for the six weeks? Yeah, we were there eight weeks in the end because the babies had to be fit to travel. We had to have the, the, the pediatrician sign off on that for us. But um, yeah, we weren't, due to, we weren't due to stay in California for eight weeks. And in fact, my eldest, who was seven at the time, um, had to stay behind for her schooling. And also because we left in, in such a panic. Um, and luckily my mother, her grandma moved in and took care of her. But as she's constantly reminding me, I missed her seventh birthday and she's about to turn 17 and she's still telling me that I, we were just, because it's coming up for all the kids' birthdays, the end of January, early February, we were talking about their birthdays and Kitty's like, yeah, you missed my seventh birthday. (laughs) So, you know, I think I seem to have caused her some sort of, you know, trauma that you know as an adult you'd be like you missed my seventh birthday but um <laughs> when are their birthdays uh 20th of january for the twins and first of february for kitty bad planning but what can you do also fast after christmas but um you know small small price to pay really so um yeah it's it's all good and we're just i'm just busy working out how to get them some birthday presents now while we're in lockdown and they can't have any birthday parties or see any friends, but uh, you know we'll we'll make something special and, and reminisce. Look back at the baby photos. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. So you had quite uh, interesting birth stories in in birth in both situations. Yes. Yeah. Really. Really. Definitely, definitely unusual um, birth stories for both of them. But I guess it's part of what defines me. It's, uh, it's you know, the road that I've traveled. And to such a degree, it's made me the person I am now and kind of how, how I feel about things. And, you know, like uh, in 2020, I left my corporate career. Um, I do business coaching now for online entrepreneurs but I, I don't think I'd have had the confidence to do that if I wasn't able to look back and actually say to myself, but look what you have achieved in the past. How can you not be someone that can achieve whatever it is you set your mind to? And um, I was fortunate to have life coaching, which you know, I think is so essential if you really want to achieve. And that life coach really helped me see that actually I had an inbuilt level of confidence from this experience, which you know I I crystallized into a mantra just a private one for myself which was that I make I can make the impossible possible um and I bring that forward into my life now as I'm building my business and as I'm coaching you know my clients that actually you can have whatever you want but you have to be really certain about what it is and you have to be 
really tenacious about getting it. And um, I've certainly sort of proved that in my own life, in my own small way. Um, and that's that's actually been quite a comfort. So, you know, I've, I have actually seen the gifts in going through all of that. Yeah, I think that is an amazing mindset to have and something that, you know, I have learned that I want more of in my life. So, you know, surrounding myself with people that are also thinking those things has been so beneficial and and seeing other people who are making it possible is so amazing and so uplifting. But how do you think that mindset has helped you in motherhood? Wow, that's a great question because, you know, I'm all about being honest. And I thought that having gone through so much would make me a naturally outstanding mother in all ways. Because think of the gratitude, right? Wow, you know, I'm so grateful that, you know, I lived and my babies lived and that therefore should mean I'm super patient and, you know, all the ways that we want to be with our children. But I actually have found that I have the same struggles as as every other mother, (laughs) you know, know, as a mum of three and particularly of twins, you know, any twin mums out there will or any people, any any mums who have sort of two very young children at the same time, you can just know that it's very very testing and you know we found it really hard when the twins were little with them being preemies we just didn't sleep we had to feed them around the clock and with it being twins as well you know we even like set up a mattress in the nursery and me and my husband took turns to sleep in the bedroom with them and out and not in the bedroom with them so we could literally like get some sleep it was crazy and you know as they've grown um I have done a lot of work to on myself to sort of try and be the best possible mother I can. But I think that motherhood, I mean, I guess there's people out there that it does come really naturally to and are just really chilled people. And I wish I was one of those, but I guess you have to work with what you've got. <laughs> and But I think it's really important to just be mindful of where you're at and like I said work with it you you can't ignore it you have to step up and try your very best to be the best possible parent you can and me and my husband talk about it constantly we're always sort of saying could we have dealt with that better and why are we why are we stressed out or frustrated one of my daughters we think is ADHD as well so that adds an extra element to it about you know how we need to you know, consider the way she behaves and be, you know, a bit more open to managing behaviors in different ways. So I guess, I guess it kind of means that you have all the same struggles. And I don't, and I'm I'm not sure if it has changed the way that I mother. I guess it has, because how could it not? But perhaps I'm just not aware of those changes, because I never experienced motherhood with a birth that went really smoothly and could compare the two. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I think I think all those things really help to facilitate a better view on motherhood and like you had said going through all those situations, you know, really kind of set you up for look at all that I have already been through. I can do this. I can keep going. So I think that's definitely something to be grateful for and and look back on. Yeah, exactly. You know, like I'm super thankful for you coming on here and sharing your stories. These have been 
So exciting. And I had no idea what to expect when, when you had interesting birth stories to tell. So I am, I'm pleasantly surprised by all of it and so amazed at everything that you have been through and the mindset that you have been able to obtain since coming out of all of that. So I am, I'm so, so, so grateful <laughs> for you to have come on here and to do this with me. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Sarah. I think the whole Entering Motherhood podcast idea is so, so needed. So I'm just grateful to have been able to add something to that. Thanks for having me. Yes. And do you want to let us know how we can reach you or or anything else about you? You can find me on Instagram. My handle is Iamjo.ingram. Um, I also have a podcast called Action Taker Tribe, which is all about taking action as you build an online business. Perfect. Oh, that is so amazing. I'm so glad for this conversation and, and everything that you've shared with us. Oh, you're welcome. Wraps up yet another episode of Entering Motherhood. I hope that you have found this episode helpful. And if you liked it, please share it with others who might also benefit from this information. If there's anything that you'd like to know more about, or maybe you know someone who'd like to be on the show, please visit my website, enteringmotherhood.com. I'm so thrilled to be going on this journey with you and getting the amazing opportunity to help moms during this postpartum experience.